During this conversation, Ryan and I discuss Will Arbery's Pulitzer Prize-nominated play, Heroes of the Fourth Turning. At the time of our conversation, there weren't any virtual screenings of the play, and live theater is, of course, not viable during this pandemic. We've since learned that Wilma Theater in Philadelphia recorded a site-specific production of Heroes of the Fourth Turning and is streaming the recording via their website until December 13th. You'll find the link in our show notes, and we hope you'll complement this conversation with a viewing. Enjoy. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, hosted by Elise Lonich Ryan, John Buckman, and me, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. I'm here with Elise Ryan, my co-host, and I've been listening to Elise's episodes over the past couple months, and every time I listen, I'm just like, oh man, I want to have a conversation with Elise. And, and you know, you and I have been kind of having these fleeting conversations where we're like, oh, we really need to talk about that sometime. And so we've got this list of things, a list of postponed conversations and uh, now we're now we get to actually talk about them. Yeah, I'm really excited. I feel similarly, Ryan. I want to have conversations, and I think that's the best outcome of this pandemic at this moment is wanting to say more to someone or say something back. So I'm really looking forward to today's talk. Yeah, me too. Where do you want to start? Oh, good question. Well, what are you reading lately? Uh, that's where we started all of this months ago. We talked about what we were reading, so why not just begin there? What's kind of keeping you attuned? That's true. I'm I'm reading uh, an amazing Chinese science fiction trilogy by uh, an author, Si uh, Xin Liu. I'm going to butcher the name, but it was it's blurbed by Barack Obama. Nice. So it must be good, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and it's it's really um, I had this very eerie experience coming back. I was driving back from a camping trip with my kids this this past weekend and. It's a kind of apocalyptic novel. The encounter with the first encounter of humanity with aliens is just, they aren't friendly aliens. And so I'm now in the third volume. And one of the big issues is that there seems to be some force sending meteorites into spaceships and destroying things. And it was just, I mean, the the, the title of the second volume is The Dark Forest. And it's just is getting sort of dark and enclosed. The more they expand into space, the more enclosed everything feels. The options are closing down, which is kind of how, you know, proceeding into 2020 has felt for me. And at that moment, uh, when it was talking about these meteorites, I saw, you know, driving 80 miles an hour, I saw the brightest, I think it was a, a meteorite that I've ever seen before. It must have been very low atmosphere. Its trail was was like something, you know, felt like that bit. Like if I put my fingers on the windshield, like it would have it would have been like an inch an, an inch across. And it went the entire uh, length of the sky that the visible sky and and at the end it exploded. There was an explosion and it burst. It looked like it burst into pieces, which made me think, oh my gosh, is this a missile being shot down or something? Right. But uh, I didn't see anything about it in the news the next day. <laughs> Although there were other stories in the news going on. This is when this was when the election results were still up in the air. And so that is my kind of seems like everything I've been reading very uh, has been sort of absorbing this this mood of, of 2020. There's also pandemics in this book. Yeah, I I have my own weird story to share about reading the signs of the times and everything becoming darker and more claustrophobic. So, and this also relates to what I'm reading now too, or rereading as the case may be. Uh, the morning after the election, I woke up to the sound of an owl hooting, which I have never heard before at my house since moving into this house in 2017. And I was out of bed at 4 a.m. like a lightning bolt, 
trying to find this owl, looking out the window, trying to find it as if I could. Obviously, I did not, but I'm hearing it hooting and the moon was waning, but it was still mostly full and it was casting these beautiful moon shadows on the backyard. And what I could see was not this owl, but several doe bedded down in the backyard. So I am just thinking, what does any of this mean? How do I, how do I read these signs? And I was talking with a friend of mine asking her what she thought. And she said, it means nothing. It just happened, which I'm sure is the right answer. But she also said, but you do remind me of that line in Benjamin, Walter Benjamin's essay, Unpacking My Library, about the Owl of Minerva. So I went back and I'm rereading this essay. And he does have that great line about the Owl of Minerva only flies at night and it's only in extinction when the meaning of a collection becomes known and understood. So what does any of this mean? A meteorite that you saw explode, an owl, apparently, I think, hooting. I'm pretty sure I wasn't dreaming. Um, Benjamin, this is, I think the start of this conversation, Ryan, is all anybody needs to say about 2020 and where our minds are <laughs> at this moment. That is so good. I love that you got to hear an owl. And so the owl of Minerva, the muse of history, right? Yeah. Um, or no, Cleo is the muse. Cleo is the muse of history. Minerva is, in this case, what? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think in this case, it is a kind of way of thinking about death and knowledge and kind of the, the sign that goes forth from a body of knowledge that is presumed to be extinct, as he says. I mean, he's kind of talking about, as he's, the title of the essay is Unpacking His Library, Unpacking My Library. And immediately a few sentences past the, the, the reference to the Owl of Minerva, he talks about what happens to him when he looks at his books and what he sees, what he thinks about is not necessarily the content of the books, but the images and the memories that are associated with that books, with, with those books. So his ideas about collecting and collectors have a lot to do with what I tend to think of kind of as a hologram relationship. There is the experience, the knowledge, and then the reflection upon it and the way that that reflection intersects with memory and with affect. And, you know, by the end, he said that he has now built this dwelling place and it, the only job for the collector now is to disappear into it and to become extinct himself. That a collection is really concerned with heirs. So I think that the, the owl of Minerva is always in flight and always disappearing. It's the, the dark sign that we have to discern. I guess all of this is getting me back to the thoughts about discernment that I've been trying to have lately, but not making a whole lot of progress on. Oh, interesting. I, so just, you know, just to clarify for our listeners, Minerva is the goddess of wisdom. Uh, but also associated with the god with um, according to Wikipedia with war, art, schools, and commerce. But but I think in, in Benjamin's essay, essay it's definitely wisdom, right? Like you don't like w you can be reading the books and you're not like the the wisdom isn't happening while you're reading the books, right? It's 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 something that comes later. And so yeah, so how what what have you been thinking about discernment? Well, really, I'm trying to parse out some thoughts that I've been having about self-reflection, self-reflexivity, and discernment, and self-being honest with oneself. Because for me, these are also tied up in questions of idolatry, which I think is something that I recognize in my, my own self, my tendency to idolize particular people or, or ideas, and then that attachment that I have to them leads to a blindness. So how do I form meaningful attachments, but am constantly excavating the desires that are embedded in those attachments and by being honest with myself? And is there a difference between a language of discernment and a language of being self-reflective? And for me, self-reflexivity is relational. We're in relationship with ourselves, but Discernment seems to me to be a working out of truth and conversation. So there is a kind of outward movement in discernment that I'm not catching in self-reflection, or at least I'm speaking for myself right now uh, and trying to work 
some things out that maybe I can extrapolate to a larger idea about the difference between these two processes. But for right now, I'm just talking about myself. So the movement out, especially in this pandemic, and how are we going to engage? How are we going to communicate seems to be the question on everyone's mind right now. And we're getting a variety of answers. And in some case, no answer. There is no communication possible. And I'd like to believe that's not true, but sometimes I fall into that trap myself. So that's why I'm thinking about discernment and self-reflection. Yeah, I think one of the one of the the big challenges to living through times of anxiety is that I think the reason uh, these times are filled with anxiety is is because we don't know what they mean. So and there's no you know, and and that's that's where like you know, the owl of Minerva flies by night. It's not until after it's all over that we know what it means. And one of the things that, that I've been writing that, that I shared with you was an effort to to think about how apocalyptic times are uh, given significance. And so that's kind of why I've been reading sci-fi. And the thing that got me going on this was that I watched Christopher Nolan's new movie, Tenet, and uh, this was this was supposed to be the the movie that saved the movie theaters in the midst of COVID, and I'm not I'm not sure it was successful. But one of my favorite movies is um, is Inception by Christopher Nolan, and it involves sort of these time traveling traveling within kinds of things. And Tenet does too. But I didn't really like Tenet, but the but the uh, the concept to me just really stuck with me, and and it's that fundamentally that time is palindromic. So the title Tenet is a is a palindrome. The beginning is the same as the end, and the middle is the middle. And so things actually end up revolving around around the middle. And if beginning and the end are the same, then the one thing that's unique is the middle. And so what uh, it struck me that in this movie that imagines that time is reversible, that we can actually sort of move through time backwards, not like travel back in time, but actually move backwards through time that is actually flowing forward. One of the things that got to me about that is that is that, that would provide the opportunity to make meaning about meaning of the muddle that is the middle. And so how do we, you know, by imagining some kind of apocalyptic end, are we then able to make meaning of what's in between? And, and, and I think that fiction is a, is a great way to, to explore that, and particularly now, fictions about pandemics. That's all really fascinating. And my mind went in a lot of different directions. So to keep with your idea here, I'm going to try to walk it back in time and go back to the middle of what you were saying, because that idea of the, the center portion being what's fundamentally unknowable, kind of reinventing itself, changing, perhaps kind of with each with each refresh, with each click is the part that is different. That seems really relevant to me on a lot of different fronts <laughs> right now. I mean, I know I've been thinking a lot about error and how we make mistakes and the way that our brain perceptually responds to mistakes. And it seems to me like we only recognize them belatedly in a lot of cases. I mean, we might touch a flame and realize we made a mistake in that moment when we're we're in pain, but kind of these world-ordering mistakes, we don't always understand them in the moment and we have to reflect back on them. And of course, we associate error with mistaken processes, but of course it, it comes from the root that means to wander. And so that idea of wandering around but also believing that error can be apocalyptic in the sense that it is both world ending and revelatory, I think is very meaningful. And I think that that is something that you're, you're kind of getting at with the idea of sci-fi that imagining an apocalypticism is actually really fruitful for understanding a present that an imagined future gives us something that we otherwise have no access to. We have no access to the present. What could that even mean to understand the present moment. We can only do it through these imaginative casts ahead and behind. So that's one thing. I'm also just thinking about temporal lags. You and I are talking over Zoom right now, and our lives are structured 
by Zoom at this particular moment, I think for many of us. So there's a way in which questions about digital life and our life with technology are also very much concerned with temporality and spatiality. And there's no physical distance that you and I can measure here. And so even our meaning across this format and the instantaneousness that we believe we're getting, an immediate image of you or the immediate sound in my headphones is mediated firstly and I think most importantly, but then also there are lags, literal lags, glitches, but there are lags in our temporal understanding. And maybe this is all a a really convoluted way of of saying why things like hot takes aren't, (laughs) aren't very useful in our current moment, that there needs to be a, the time of working out of ideas. And for myself, I see something kind of strange in our invocations of timeliness and relevance, that in order to review a book or a movie, that's got to get out right away. And we associate a kind of timeliness with presentism that I think is not very useful to us in this moment. And relevance with something more like relatability, which I I think is a concept that we could do less with. Yeah, I think I, so I think a a very concrete example of making the effort to to think about the present from the future is uh, Beatrice Institute co-sponsored a uh, a webinar called Flourishing in the Wake of COVID-19, which is is still available on our YouTube channel for those who are interested. And it was organized by Beatrice Institute faculty fellow Grant Martzolf, who is um, in Pitt School of Nursing and is an expert in health and public policy. And he brought together some epidemiological researchers who have been focusing during the pandemic not on the direct effects of of COVID, but on the on the sort of knock-on effects. And so, you know, what what does mass unemployment what what do we know from history are the are the repercussions of mass unemployment and you know, how can we look at the data that we have for depression and despair that's updated every month and see how that's changing? And, and that, and, you know, one of my big takeaways from that is that we just don't understand the extent and, and the depth of this pandemic. And we won't until well in, in the future. Uh, but there's, there are ways to try to, to try to make meaning of it, even as, as we're inside it. Mm-hmm. And our meeting will ultimately be part of the fragments that come together to show a whole at some point in the future. I think that that's, I like your reference. And I like that it also involves flourishing, <laughs> that partly not knowing doesn't have to be, doesn't have to bring us to a position of fear, or doesn't have to be uh, a position of weakness, but is actually just simply a condition of reality. And it's making me think actually of another issue that I know you and I wanted to talk about. We both are fans of Marilyn Robinson and we're both really impressed by a recent conversation she did on Ezra Klein's podcast. And she had a quote there that I'm thinking of her metaphysics. And this, just, just yeah. to pause there, Marilyn Robinson is the uh, American novelist. She's still living, uh, still very actively writing, um, who has written a series of uh, beautiful Christian novels uh, that center around the, the family of a pastor in Iowa in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah, thank you. And she's also written a lot of essays on democracy and on the humanities. So there's a whole world of her thinking uh, that is deep and rich for anyone listening who hasn't yet discovered Marilyn Robinson's writing. Where would you suggest? Would you suggest starting with Gilead or? I would. Yeah. yeah. I found my way to Robinson through her fiction. So I I guess I'm biased in that way. But yeah, the, the Gilead books, which there is the novel Gilead, and then there are other books, Lila, and now her, a recent novel, Jack, and then the other one, Home. Home, thank you. Yes. Uh, that all center around this community of Gilead in Iowa and families re- 
and relationships. Um, that to me is a really excellent place to start. But so go ahead with, with what your, the quote from Marilyn Robinson's interview. Well, she was talking about her, Ezra Klein asked her about her view of metaphysics and she said that she refused to reduce it to the anomalous fragment of reality. <laughs> and I loved that, uh, because, you know, her point was that this, if, if physics has shown us anything, it is that our physics, and I'll also say like cognitive psychology and perceptual psychology have shown us anything. It's that we are inhabiting a world that is far vaster than we can really even imagine. Uh, and that it is really just our imaginations that give us the best grasp on it, not even the science. The science kind of tells us that. And maybe that's another way to loop back around to, to sci-fi and fiction. But her point, as I understand it, was that anything that sort of grounds itself on what is only and totally available in the real or in reality, which I think she means by that as a some kind of present moment, is not going to capture everything. And I mean, I think even phenomenological ways of thinking show us this, um, the way that our reality affords us meaning. We are always interpreting it and responding affectively, intellectually, interpretatively on objects, on our environment and surroundings. But those are always conditioned by things beyond the environment itself. So, And Ezra Klein, uh, you know, he, he had trouble wrapping his head around that response because he's, you know, Ezra Klein is the founder, one of the co-founders of Vox Media. And the mission of Vox Media besides being a propaganda machine for the, the progressive left, uh, is to explain politics, and, or just to explain, to explain anything. And uh, Ezra Klein is a, an amazingly cogent explainer of complex phenomena, but he's fundamentally a technocrat. And, and all problems, no matter how seemingly intractable, if we just approach them with adequate knowledge and, and uh and, and complexity and creativity, we can solve them. Uh, and so I think he was really, but he wants to, he's getting to this point in his life. You can tell uh, he's, he's turning to interviewing novelists and poets and he's getting to this point in his life where he's like, I think there's something more. And, and Marilyn Robinson like really pushed him on that. Yeah, I think she did. And I'll just say, I love his podcast. I have read Vox for a long time. And I think I would encourage anyone listening to go to listen to this interview, but he also has a list of some of his best interviews and they are, they are varied. They are real conversations. And yeah, I think that he is fundamentally interested in understanding <laughs> and in explanatory force, but aren't we all? I mean, I, I have kind of, you know, we're both in the business of interpretation. And I think that drive, and this is what I always come back to is like, what is the desire driving me toward meaning making? How do I understand what I want when I say I want to interpret this text or this person's words or this movie that I watched? That to me is an interesting question. That, what does it mean? And this is something I say to my students a lot. What is embedded in our desire to be able to say, Alexa, play X or Siri, show me this. What does it mean for us to want to tell something to do, to do an action for us? What does it mean that we gave these AI, what would I even call them? Bots. Bots, female names. I'm not the first person to ask these questions, but I, I want to think about that. And I, I think that what is embedded in Marilyn Robinson's idea about this anomalous fragment of reality is that it also leaves out complex desires that we can't always account for, I think, and that structure our lives in ways that we're not always able to recognize or maybe always able to fess up to. A affect is another really important organizing category in my own thinking. So I, I, I wonder about that a lot too. Can we talk about um, uh, heroes of the fourth turning? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Where do, do you, you want to go with that? 
Well, okay. So heroes, of, heroes of the fourth turning. What would you, would you want to introduce it? Sure. It is a play by Will Arbery, and it premiered in New York City uh, in a major theater uh, in New York City, and it centers around four characters. A fifth character comes in the very end of the play. It takes place over one night in Wyoming. And these four people are early to mid twenties. They are all alumni of a small Catholic, conservative Catholic college. And they're coming together to celebrate their mentor who's recently made head of this school. And while they are there, they hash out their ideas about the contemporary political climate, their own conservatism, uh, what their education uh, from a, a Catholic conservative intellectual tradition has given them, has wrought in their lives. Their own foibles come out in a variety of ways. And this play was exceedingly well reviewed by really the mainstream New York theater critics. The New York Times, The New Yorker, Time Out New York all gave this five star reviews. The play itself is nominated for a Pulitzer. This was not a one-off. Will Barry is, Will Arbery, excuse me, is a very lauded playwright. And this isn't a play that just appealed to a very small fragment of the population. This isn't a play that really only <laughs> reached out to conservative Catholics. It has had a really wide audience. And that's part of what people are surprised by, I think, by the kind of intellectual rigor, but also the performative possibilities for this worldview, which isn't something that you see on the stage very often. And I think disappointingly, and maybe this is where you can correct me, I have not really seen any substantive article from a Christian perspective about this play. I've seen a lot of it come from, you know, mainstream news outlets, as I said, reviews, but I haven't really seen much in the other direction, but I could be wrong. I haven't looked in a while. So that's the premise of this play. Is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. I mean, just one, uh, in terms of like the kind of ideological grounding of the play, Arbery could have chosen to, to put a character in there who represents his New York audience, right? There, there could have been a parent who is appalled by the, you know, what they would see as, as the sexism of traditional Catholicism and so on and give voice to that. But he didn't. He intentionally did not insert the kind of mainstream liberal character. And so it really, I think a lot of Catholics watched this play and just thought, wow, like here's someone taking us seriously for the first time that we've seen and really digging into the theological, the historical, the cultural foundations of, of a conservative Catholic lifestyle, and particularly of at least a, a good proportion of the characters are advocates of you know what's called the Benedict Option, that in this state of advanced secularism, the best thing for faithful Christians to do is to retreat from public engagement into small communities where they can live faithfully and, and kind of carry on the faith across generations until it becomes possible again to engage the public. Sort of like the, you know, St. Benedict uh, created these monasteries that sort of re, uh, kept culture going across the tumultuous times after the, the collapse of the Roman Empire in the 5th century up until sort of a, a, a stable political order later in the Middle Ages. And so that's represented positively, I think. Yeah. And I think, so this is, this is interesting. I think this is where we'll have a good conversation. I have nothing but praise for the play. I think it was brilliantly written. I do think it manifested. And I think that the form theater is important here. I think that the theatrical form and the performance of that particular identity, which is not seen or well understood was excellent and giving it voice and allowing it to exist 
in both positive and negative ways as a, as a real human experience was truly excellent. And I, I should say too that you and I both saw this over Zoom. We did not see this in the theater. Uh, at least I don't think you did. Okay. So we both were able to, to see this a Zoom performance that happened over the summer. I know that the play is now available. The text is now available. So I think uh, many more people will be reading the, the play. And then they, there was another Zoom performance just uh, in October. Uh, and so that makes me think that there will be more Zoom performances in the, in the future that people can catch. Oh, great. Okay. I did not know that. Well, I was going to add on there that, so I mentioned about affective responses and kind of structures of feeling and that being really important to my own way of thinking. And what I, what I personally got out of that show was a validation for frankly, some bad experiences with fellow Catholics in my life. And I, I, I want to say that, and before I go any farther, I want to, I want to say that I am not this is not an attempt to denigrate or to take down other people's points of view. I'm articulating my own response to it and what I think the play allows for. So what I mean by that is the play evidenced a kind of argumentative structure that I have encountered in very few places, but one of them is amongst conservative Catholics that tends to rely on a very formal mode of argument and a rhetorical uh, a reliance upon rhetorical means and methods, and that doesn't always allow for a kind of emotional response, or the emotional response is then deemed to not be in a proper order. And so it has to be reordered to the argument. And when I've been in these positions myself, I've often felt knocked back on my heels. I suddenly get confused about where we are even, what is the topic of conversation, and in a few particular examples to my own life, deeply shamed and deeply hurt. And so when I saw the play, what I saw in a way, one thing that I, I saw was a kind of visceral response to an argumentative style and to a form of citation and to a form of intellectual sparring, which there's nothing wrong with that. But that does have a physical effect, or at least it's had a physical effect on me. And so I thought, oh, that does exist, or that wasn't just me, or there is this whole realm of feeling. And I felt like that was, that was the backside to the play in a way. If the ideas are the front side, the backside to me was what happens when you are in that environment engaged in this kind of argumentative intellectual sparring. And you don't feel like you have a way to, to talk back to that or the way that you, you do have isn't acknowledged as a valid form of argumentation. So I loved the play and that was one big reason for it. And I, I, you know, I don't, I have felt more isolated from the audience that that play represented than I have felt to be a part of it. Even though some of the people I've known the longest in my life have been a part of that the group that was represented in the play. And again, this is not an us versus them. It's just saying my own position mattered in my reading of the play. Yeah. Did the character Emily, who is the the daughter of the new college president, and she is she suffers from some kind of severe, you know, life chronic illness, did she represent for you the position of someone who who feels shut down by the kind of classical rhetorical approach to things? Yes, I mean, definitely. I think that she, at least my reading of her character, is that that is part of her position in the play, that she is kind of representing another. And to give the, our, our listeners some context, she's a character that works in a clinic for women trying to discourage them from getting abortions, but in that process is comes face to face with the complicated questions that women face in the world and especially women of color face. And the ending of the play, I, I guess I won't give any spoilers here, but I'm still wondering about the end of the play. I mean, the play, I think. I, th I think for the sake of conversation, we, we should just 
spoil it. Okay. Okay. Well then know if you're listening that we are going to spoil it here. Yeah, so. I mean, cause you can just skip over if you, if you really don't want to know how the play ends, you can just skip over the next, uh, you know, five minutes. Right. So, well, at the end of the play, Emily has this moment of reckoning, I suppose, within herself, this moment of apocalyptic revelation where she unveils the depths of her own physical pain, but also feelings of of anger and resentment that she has long carried. And she funnels it through an experience that she had with a woman at this woman's clinic. And it is a woman of color. And she begins to ventriloquize that woman. So she goes back and forth and, and speaks both as herself, but also as this woman. It's almost like a scene of possession, like this, this woman has possessed her in a particular way. And, or, yeah, or I, I guess I would say more like an, uh, a, a medium, like a seance situation, like it, where she is becoming a medium for this other person. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like that because I mean, that to me gives a different reading, um, <laughs> which I think is helpful because if she is a medium then, and she is speaking to an audience that would otherwise not hear this woman's voice, there's a, there's a form of advocacy there that I understand. Because I think the other big issue that the play really gets into is questions of race and why is race still so difficult in particular faith communities. And it's not just conservative Catholicism. Why is it still something that people will not acknowledge um, and will not kind of ask serious questions about? And I think the play just sort of leaves us with like, why won't we talk about this? So to go back to your question of me, did I see myself in her? To a certain extent, yes. Although... I am still trying to work out what I think that character represents or means. And is this kind of white woman ventriloquizing a black woman's pain appropriate right now? Um, so I'm still working through that. So here's, here's my understanding of the two, the two major readings of the end of the play that I've, that I've come across. And tell me if, you know, these map onto what you've heard or read or, or thought. So one is that Emily is being developed as a kind of saintly figure in, in this play. And her, her sanctity is, is in part distinguished because of the fact that she both understands the dialectical, uh, theological approach to um, reality and morality that some of the other characters stand for. And she not only understands it, but, but she... She takes it seriously. Um, she takes the she takes these discursive dialectic dialectical claims to or the claim of the Catholic Church that there is part of the Catholic Church's authority is invested in these you know discursive dialectical formations like you know Thomas Aquinas. Uh, there's something about the clarity of that that logic that is irreducible. And if you throw that away, you, you can't have the rest of the faith, right? And so she, she seems to take that seriously, but at the same time, she recognizes the importance of feeling. So, in, so she's kind of intellectually, she seems able to, to inhabit both the, the sort of romantic theology of kind of John Paul II um, and the rationalistic theology, but, you know, really her own mode seems to be more on the, the romantic side of things. And, and then when we get to this climax of the play, when she uh, ventriloquizes this other figure, it is, a, it is the sort of utmost expression of her sanctity because it shows that she is, she is actually able to empty herself of herself and like Jesus, you know, canonically emptying himself, be fully available to a human being who's completely, you know, in many ways different from her. So that's the that's the one the one reading. And then the other reading is that is that Emily is torn apart 
by this conflict in herself between, you know, traditional rationalistic dogma and her, her feelings. And that that conflict ultimately results in, in the, the revealing that what many people had interpreted as being kind of mystical aspects of Emily's life are actually psychological phenomena. And, and she is ultimately hysterical. And in this ventriloquism scene, she is, she is experiencing a hysterical episode that is leading her to cross very important identity, identitarian boundaries and to claim to speak and think on behalf of somebody who, for whom she has no right to, to think or speak. And so what we see there then is the corrupting influence of this traditional Catholicism that it, it drives people who can truly think and feel, it drives them crazy. Okay. What do you think of, of those two interpretations? <laughs> well, the, the part of me that, that does want to like get into is like, isn't there a third option? But I, I find myself... So I hadn't read these two interpretations. So I'm, as I'm listening to you, it is hard for me to come down on the side of the inter the saintly interpretation. It is tough for me to, to land there. Do I think she's hysterical? No. But do I think the play is asking us to take seriously psychological manifestations of physical pain? Like her embodiment clearly matters in this play. And yeah. her... One... one or maybe the major symptom of her illness is is chronic pain, right? Exactly. Yes. And and so that and I think her own position as as an embodied woman matters. I mean the other character the other female character in the play Teresa, I think it matters for her too. So I I don't want to to say that it's only true for this character Emily. So I I I I do follow that idea about a kind of psychological manifestation. You know, I think maybe I'm, I'm, I'll just say this. I think I'm really close. I'm kind of close to this. So it's hard for me right now to extricate my own experiences and do that work of interpretation where we started this conversation because there was a period in my life, and I'll just share this for whoever might want to hear it, where I did th think I was crazy. Like where I, I was, and I was told by a person that I was hysterical. And it came down in, in precisely these ways, <laughs> this kind of argument. And it, it left a, I mean, you don't get over that very easily. And it left a big mark in my life. It's a, it's a line in the sand in my life. And so, you know, you said that the second reading is that this traditional Catholicism just drives people crazy. I don't think that's true, but I have felt the truth of it in my life. And so, that might be all I can say about it <laughs> because I'm realizing that it, as, as an effect of our conversation here, there, of course, I've known that there's so much that I personally have been working out and working through over the years. And my, my own Catholicism, it is my imaginative purchase on the world. And I, I say that in faith. I'm not saying that, you know, it's a, I'm not using imagination in a kind of um, vague way, but it's always, it's always the thing I am in, in relationship and intention with. And that's meaningful for me. That's not a capitulation. But I think my reading of this play is so super saturated <laughs> with my own frustrations, with my own experience, with my own pain, that it's difficult for me at this point to extricate my experience from it. And I'll add one more thing. I also don't think it's always necessary to do that. I don't think that good criticism is devoid of the personal. In fact, I think it's often motivated by the personal. It's just a matter of how do I find the language to translate my experiences into a reading of the play. Maybe I haven't fully done that yet. Yeah. You know, uh, so what's interesting to me is that the, the latter interpretation I have seen come mostly from people who, you know, traditional Catholics. Interesting. And so, and, and then the former interpretation, you know, that, that, that she is a saint, I, I think, well, I, I, I haven't seen that in writing and I'm not, I'm not 
sure I would want to associate that with sort of a secular audience, but it, it I could see it as a potentially secular reading. But when I when I watched the play, I was actually I watched it at Wyoming Catholic College, which is kind of the fictionalized basis of of this play, with people who are part of that community. And they they too experienced it intensely personally. I mean, as you might imagine, but, um, you know, I, I think regardless of interpretation, I think this is the kind of play that, that no matter where you are, and I think even, I don't think you need to be Catholic to be, to be intensely engaged by this play. You know, I, I'm a Catholic convert and I know, you know, evangelicalism and mainland Protestantism very well from the inside. And I think that, it, it's gonna. I think it's it kind of like there's there's positions in that play that are so close to anybody who is trying to practice the Christian faith in the contemporary world that you're gonna have like a personal response, and that's one of the brilliant things about it. I would completely agree with that, and I I, I second what you said that this isn't. It may be a play about Catholics, but I don't think. I mean the the reception it's received thus far proves that it's not for only that audience. And I think you're right. It did present a way of thinking about, and again, I keep coming back to this performing, what it means to live in the world as a person of faith and the contradictions that you bump up against and the ways that you are trying to always ascertain what it is you believe and the, the bedrocks that you fall back on. And I think it's not incidental that this is a conversation amongst friends. The, the, the situation of the play is a conversation amongst friends, people who share a history, people who went through things together, people who made mistakes together. I mean, that's a kind of, we can leave that one as a, an unspoiled element for people yes, that there, right. <laughs> that there are other revelations that the night brings. Um, and you know, it, it's not, it is a very visceral, representation of what it means to try to be faithful when the mandate is be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor. When those are your mandates, the the bar is set very high to put it my, <laughs> to understate it. Maybe that's a great transition to A Hidden Life, Terrence Malick's most recent movie where the hero, the main character, Franz Jägerstetter, historical figure, he takes up that challenge and lays down his entire life in order to resist the Nazis. And so this is a true story, based on a true story. And we both saw it. And I think, yeah, I think I immediately, because we, we've talked about Terrence Malick before, and I think I immediately like texted you and said, what, what do you, have you seen it? What do you think of it? Yeah. Do you want me to to start again? Because I feel like I'm going to get on another like crabby track, and I don't know. How much. Oh, well. This, I mean, could I just say something about Terrence Malick? First? Please, yes. Mm -hmm. Terrence Malick should be my favorite director uh, in many ways. He made my favorite movie of all time, uh, Tree of Life. He also made what I think is the best war movie, um, Within Blue Line, that I found just absolutely stunning. And he is clearly just unremittingly engaged with reality. Reality understood as the disclosure of truth, beauty, and goodness from the heart of being itself. And that's all that he really cares about. I mean, it, it, it seems to me. Uh, and how to, and I guess the moments when those, uh, when reality becomes real and it discloses itself to us but he's not he doesn't belong to any actual faith tradition he belongs to one that that is kind of imaginary and uh, i mean it has a historical tradition but you know american transcendentalism so he describes himself as an american transcendentalist in the you know in the tradition of emerson and so for a while, I thought that didn't really matter, and that he was just kind of making a making an intellectual historical mistake, category mistake, when he in thinking about himself or describing himself. But then, watching some other movies, I began to see like there's just there's like this uh, a sentimentalism that comes through sometimes, 
that just becomes a little too saccharine for me. And I haven't, I don't have like a, a direct line of interpretation between like Emerson and sentimentalism, but there's something there that, that always makes me like back up a little bit from him and makes him, makes him not my favorite director. Well, and so then we come to this Catholic movie. He actually makes a Catholic movie. I mean, it's about a Catholic blessed, blessed Franz Jägerstetter. And so that to me is like, oh, wow, well, maybe, maybe, maybe something's changing. Okay. Well, I was nodding vociferously on your claims about his sentimentalism uh, because Terrence Malick clearly has a visual language that is beautiful. And I mean, he works with great cinematographers who have a real way of capturing things from the, literally from the ground up, these sweeping lyrical shots, but also positioned at strange angles that are like coming in, like the angles of light. And he seems to be very interested in refraction. And I, I really find all of that beautiful. And, and the, uh, the audio style, the style of audio editing where he's sort of created this, uh, the style of voice over narration that kind of is not just a one-off, but interacts with intradiegetic audio. So extradiegetic audio interacting with intradiegetic audio, meaning characters speaking in the scene and then characters voicing over in the scene is really powerful. And he's been doing it since early on and it, he does it to amazing effect in, in this, in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I also, the voiceover is intriguing to me and I see Malik and maybe I should just say too that I also feel like maybe Malik should mean more to me than he does. I am a part of that party that was not engaged by Tree of Life. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. There are people <laughs> who I know, dear friends of mine who are probably listening to this and they just shake their head or something worse, but that did nothing for me. But leaving that aside for the moment, I see Malik as kind of an inheritor of a filmmaker that I do love and have a semi-idolatrous relationship to, and that's Tarkovsky and the kind of granular attention to detail and the revelation of reality that you spoke about with Malik, I see in Tarkovsky, but also in Tarkovsky, the, the overlay of voiceover is really important. Um, and I think his working out of it is stronger to me than Malik's, but be that as it may. So yeah, Terrence Malick isn't my filmmaker either, even though I appreciate the way that he makes film. So did you find A Hidden Life sentimental? Because that is actually one of my my critiques of it. So I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did. I got to the end of the movie and I thought why did this guy resist the Nazis? Exactly. Is it just, is it just because like <laughs> he had some kind of infusion of, of clarity and truth that nobody else did in his village? And why, why was he so special? I was like, there's got to be more to it. And I immediately I went on Amazon. I was like, surely there's a book about this guy. And it turns out that the book about this guy is a thick collection of his letters that he was writing to his wife and to his bishops back and forth exchanges about this. And they are intensely intellectual. Um, his conscience was being formed in a, in a very strong and detailed way from well before the Nazi occupation. And yes, that's where it came from. It's like, yeah, he, he didn't just have an infusion. Like the guy, the guy was reading everything he could get his hands on, um, not, not only uh, theology and, and ethics, but, but all of the, the political happenings. I mean, he, he subscribed to the newspaper and read it cover to cover every day. Yes. I think we're on the same page about this. Uh, when I said I was going to be crabby earlier, it maybe made it seem <laughs> like we were going <laughs> to be on divergent poles, but we're really not. I, I found the same thing in my reaction at the end of the film was, did I need three to three and a half hours to have an Ubermensch? <laughs> like the very thing that he was supposed to be fighting against this kind of superlative view of a particular race of people seemed to have been transferred onto him, that he was somehow 
this, as you put it, specially infused person that kind of was like the incredible Hulk that just bulked up in the moment. And then, you know, he alone resisted the Nazis. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand why so many Christians and why so many Catholics in particular just found this to be a great Catholic film or a great representation of a Catholic figure resisting the Nazis because the, the only explanation I have for it is that there must be a way in which the actual biography, the actual letters are being read onto a film that cannot support the reality of their lives. And I don't know about you, but there was a scene when he is, he has been called in to a kind of trial scenario and they're, they're giving him basically an opportunity to recant and to say, okay, you may not believe any of this, but just say that you do. Otherwise you're going to be killed and your, your wife and your children are going to suffer for this as well. And there is a lawyer representing the Nazis. And he seems to be of this mindset, like, yeah, I don't really like these guys either, but look, I'm just getting along with them here. And he says, are you alone wise? Okay, so this is a Nazi saying this. That's what, of course, Thomas More said to Martin Luther. And when I when I saw that, I laughed out loud. In, in this really serious <laughs> moment in this film, I oh laughed aloud. I thought, well, now we have devolved to where we're kind of in some weird, ironic hall of mirrors where I'm supposed to think who, what is going on with Thomas More's quote here? And that, that led to madness. Um, so do you remember what, what was Jägerstetter's response to that? I believe it was silence, but uh, to be honest right. with you, I don't. <laughs> Um, to be honest, I don't recall. And I watched that film over the summer as well. And I have, I have not returned to it, nor do I think that I will. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm fairly sure it was silence because that's how he responds to, to everything. And it, and it could be, I mean, you know, it could be that uh, historically, I didn't look into this aspect of it, but it could be that historically he did, you know, keep Christ-like silence during the trial scenes. But that silence is, Malik takes it to be carried through the rest of his life. Um, and one of the interesting things that I discovered was that even though some of the voiceover um, is drawn from the text of his letters to his wife, most of it is not. So we're not even getting, like, even in the voiceovers, we're not even getting the voice of Franz Jägerstetter. Right. It does. And the problem, an additional problem with that for me, is that it makes a voice disembodied from a situation where resistance, again, we come back to this idea is an embodied practice. Like to actually say no was an act of the will and an act of the body that required a moral, ethical, intellectual, intellectual and physical strength. And I think what that, you know, you had mentioned that the, the primary writing about the Jägerstatters is their letters. And I also think that his wife was not well portrayed in this film at all. And unfortunately, in my view, became a representation that's just fodder for the kind of wasting wife away at home who has to, you know, deal with the ostracization that her community foists upon her when Franz is, is taken away and when he makes his stand. But her strength, her intellectual development, that all got washed away in the, this film, which to me is, was the final strike, I guess. Yeah. And that, that idea of intellectual development, I think is so important because one of the, one of the, you know, I would say that, that the, you know, when, when his, you know, cause goes up to, to, to be made it a saint, I think one of the great, maybe the defining feature of, of his sanctity, especially sort of in the modern world, you know, to be a modern saint, um, is not that he resisted the Nazis, but that he, um, that he was transformed by the renewal of his mind. And in his, he led a, a kind of, you know, classic dissolute youth. He had a child out of wedlock. He sort of bounced around from various jobs. He was not, you know, <laughs> 
this isn't someone who sort of grew up pious and, and wanting to be a priest. And it, it, it was only sort of when the politics of the outside world starting to press upon him that that he really got serious, right, about life and did so all the way. Like he went all the way and uh, and he was transformed. And, and, and his wife was too in those conversations that they had back and forth coming around to, to his his difficult position. And I think this is a good mirror for the difference between the hard work of emotional honesty and affective response that we've been talking about and an easy sentimentalism. I mean, sentimentalism manufactures a feeling. It's a feeling for the sake of feeling. Um, you know, we, we sometimes read uh, recently in a lot of pieces about a kind of intellectual hand-wringing. It's that hand-wringing, that kind of excessive feeling for the sake of feeling. But actual emotional engagement is tied with our intellectual life, and it is difficult in ways that our lives are are difficult. (laughs) And it requires, I think, I'm very interested in form generally. And that's why I think that Heroes of the Fourth Turning works so well because it's a play. I don't think it would work as well as a short story. But I also think that in some ways, Malick's visual language is fundamentally unsuited formally to the kinds of biographical questions that he seemingly wanted to tackle in this film. Yeah, I I agree. I I absolutely agree. Well, where do we go from here? (laughs) Uh, how about how about uh, a recommendation of something that you be, besides? I guess we have recommended Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Is there yeah, I would certainly still recommend with? that. I think. Let's see. Over the last year, I've done a lot of reading in nature writing, and that has really influenced my thinking a lot. And in terms of worldliness, relationship to other creatures, but also I think that nature writing does something formally that happens in different genres, but nature writing does it especially well. And that is unites a sense of fact and study and science alongside a sense of wonder and joy and a kind of resplendent appreciation for the world around us. And I, I would like to recover more of that union and that entanglement of an approach to truth that is both informed by fact and wonder. So I'd recommend to people Barry Lopez's book, Arctic Dreams, which is along with Rachel Carson's The Sea Around Us. Those are probably the two best pieces of nature writing that I've read. They're extraordinary. So those are two recommendations I would have for folks right now. All right. Good. What about you? Well, you know, I sticking with the kind of sci-fi kick that I've been on, I was I really was drawn into uh the HB well, not originally HBO series, um originally Norwegian series called Be Foreigners. Uh and the concept of this series is that in the second largest city of Norway, people from the past start floating up in the harbor and they are essentially immigrants to the present. And they come from various eras. There's a large Stone Age contingent, there's a large Viking Age contingent, and there's a large Victorian contingent. And uh, and they're stuck. Like, they can't go back. Nobody knows how they got there. They don't remember how they got there. And in some ways, it replicates the refugee you know, crisis uh, in, in Europe, where especially these Scandinavian countries have been very welcoming to especially Syrian refugees, but at the same time, like there's a major cultural clash. Uh, it's hard to know what to do with them. And and then there, are, I think, I'm not sure how the politics plays out, but I know that there are large movements politically to say, look, we're being taken over by these immigrants. Our culture is going to be, uh, is, you know, is going to be overwhelmed by immigration if we don't put an end to it. And so. But but the, the most interesting thing to me is that the present is being colonized by the past and the past might actually might actually win. And all of the achievements of modernity are the mirror is held up to them and they're put to the test and 
you know, liberal democracy is turns out not to be incredibly attractive to Stone Age people. Um, you know, tolerance turns out not to be a principle that the Stone Age people are, are willing to, or Viking Age people are willing to embrace. And it's a really, you know, this, my main academic project is called Genealogies of, of Modernity. And if, you know, if our project could have put together a, a series to, a TV series to, to kind of be a, a sandbox or a, a lab to test out theories of how we became modern, what modern, what modernity means and what is its relationship to the past. This is, this is the series that would have done it. Nice. Thank you. How can we access that? Well, I think unfortunately you have to have an HBO subscription and it is a very short series. It's just six episodes. And when I heard about it, I was like, I got to watch this. And so I got uh, like a seven day free trial Exactly. Uh, and, and binged it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. The free trial. How many of those have I started during this pandemic? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Elise, it's so wonderful to have these conversations with you finally. I know it is. I'm really grateful for it, Ryan. And we didn't even get into anything about Zoom fatigue or our phenomenological response to Zoom or worship over Zoom. So maybe we'll have to do this again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and the fact that we've enjoyed this conversation so much just, I think, goes to show that Zoom isn't all bad. That's right. That's right. <laughs> this episode brought to you by Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so bad. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan, very much. Yeah. Thank you, Elise. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.